My guest is Emily O'Reilly. Emily O'Reilly is the European Ombudsman, a post she has occupied for the past 10 years. Before that, she was for 10 years the Ombudsman of Ireland as well. So she has at least 20 years experience in this job. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you for inviting me. Well, inviting you back because it's hard to believe, but it's over six years since we last had a podcast chat together. So maybe it's high time we, we carried on the conversation. So very much welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Right. If you don't, and just to be clear, in case I get any pushback, it is correct to refer to you as the European Ombudsman and not anything else. Is that is that correct? You will get pushback, Paul. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the trouble legally, you know, in the treaties, it's, it's the Ombudsman in English and in French, it's more gendered, mediatrice, uh, you know, defensor del pueblo. Uh, it's it's a Swedish term. I I answer to ombudsman, ombudswoman. The Americans call us ombuds, which I absolutely hate. So whatever. Yes, it's the office right. of the ombudsman, but refer to me as uh, whatever way you will. Well, now that we clear that up, let's let's get cracking. I'd, I'd like first of all for you to explain uh, very briefly the what the what what your job entails, uh, what the limits of your powers, and and uh, where your powers stop and uh, where they do not go any further. So let's start with that, please, very briefly. Okay, I suppose the best way of explaining it is I am, I am the watchdog of the European administration. So just as virtually every member state in the European Union has an ombudsman type office that takes complaints against their administration, so too does the European administration have an ombudsman that takes complaints in relation to their doings or failings or whatever. So uh, anybody, citizens, media, even parliamentarians, civil society, businesses, they can approach us if they feel they haven't been treated fairly by the European administration. Most typically it's the commission because it is obviously the big beast in the jungle. But of course, we get a lot of complaints in relation to the regulatory agencies, but also the European Central Bank, the European Investment Bank. So what we basically do, we look at what the complainant comes with. We go to the relevant institution or agency and we say, well, what's your story? Uh, they tell us what their story is. We go back to the complainant and say they're saying this and it goes. But we enable that conversation to take place between them on a level playing field, really, because we lend our expertise, our access and, and so on to, to the uh, to the citizen who is generally, you know, in, in, in a less uh, powerful playing position than the than the institution. And so. When we have seen all we need to see, we can access any documents we need to see. We make our mind up and we either say, you know, there's no problem there or we find maladministration and suggest a remedy. Right. And could you say briefly before we move on to specific dossiers, how much the job has evolved in the 10 years since you've been in this position? Have you been able to to basically, in effect, increase your powers by just being more active and proactive and, and pushing the boundaries, basically? Well, I think uh, what I've done is is uh, increase our influence. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I often refer to the office as 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 an influencer. We we don't have binding powers. We can't force people to do what we need to do, but we have to use the various tools uh, at our disposal to try and influence uh, better behaviour. So when I came in first, uh, I you know I was fairly familiar with the office because I'd been a national ombudsman for for, for ten years and. Right. The European Ombudsman chairs the network, the European network of Ombudsman. So I was familiar with the office. And I think, you know, I could see where it was strong. I could see where it was weak. And I basically wanted to make it more effective. I wanted to make it more visible, more relevant, more influential. And I set about doing that in a very strategic way. I think, well, by making us generally work better, uh, but also by using 
the power of own initiative investigation, which was strengthened when the statute itself was strengthened a couple of years ago. So this basically means if there is an issue uh, that comes to our attention, not necessarily through a complaint, of which we feel we could use our power and our influence to remedy, and then we can open what's called a known initiative investigation. So we have done that in relation to you know, trade talks. We've done it in relation to revolving doors. Uh, we're doing it at the moment in relation to, to Frontex and the sinking of the Adriana uh, in, in June with the loss of 500 plus lives. Um, so that has been very powerful because when we do an investigation like that, you know, you're speaking to a wider audience than just, you know, the complainant, but they're they're still, you know, the core of our work, obviously. Uh, but you're also doing investigations generally into cases of wider public interest. Mm -hmm. And that over the years has attracted uh, the attention of, you know, civil society businesses as well, more people to the office. And that has given us greater strength and, and greater influence. And before you were the National Ombudsman in Ireland, of course, you were a, a journalist, political editor. So you're obviously, to use the phrase, media savvy. You've been clearly very effective also in using the media to amplify your messages, because with all due respect, your office, uh, certainly in the past, has not been, maybe should we say, the most high profile of the bodies out there. People might not know, uh, and rightly so, what on earth the Ombudsman office is all about. Well, I, I think, yeah, I had 20 years as, as, as a journalist. I've been 20 years a journalist, 20 years an ombudsman. So I don't know in the future right. if I'm going to be referred to as the former journalist or the former <laughs> ombudsman or both. Anyway, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, obviously I come in with, with a knowledge of how the media works. So my time in the media kind of predated social media and, and all of that. So, right. you know, it's, a, it's much, as you know, much different world nowadays but what I like to think is that for those the last 40 plus oh my god I can't believe I'm saying that <laughs> years um I started very young uh you know I've been in that same space which is between the people yeah. and yeah. those who are admin who are the, those who are ruling them those who have power over them and I've always been fascinated by that interplay and how it works out so in journalism you know you do that uh, on a daily yeah. basis all journalists do but equally, an ombudsman is in is in that same space. I have to be a little more, perhaps, mm, careful, yeah. <laughs> judicious right. in what I say and how I say it. But it's generally that same space. So I didn't feel as if I was making a radical career change in some ways. Right. Well, as last time, this is going to be quite a free-flowing conversation. This is a conversation rather than a structured chat. However, just so you know and listeners know what we're going to be chatting about in the next 20 minutes or so, I'd like to talk about... Briefly, three specific issues, I'm sure, in your uh, top of your entry, uh, namely Qatargate, access to documents and revolving door. And uh, some of these obviously are interrelated. And then finish off with a, uh, uh, by discussing more in detail uh, some points you made in a fascinating speech recently in Warsaw about the impact of the increasingly geopolitical commission on, uh, on accountability, transparency and scrutiny and all that. So let's kick off then, uh, Emily, on on Qatargate. Can you maybe remind us where do we stand? It was all the uh, front page news and uh, quite recently, but then it seemed things have gone quiet. Are these are these uh, investigations still proceeding? And what is your role specifically beyond the police inquiries uh, into the so-called Qatargate scandal? Well, we don't have a, a specific role in, in, in policing, as it were, the, the MEPs, uh, but obviously we, we do have an expertise in relation to ethics and, and all of that, codes of conduct and all of that. So, you know, we've had numerous, uh, quite a few conversations with Parliament through President Metzola and also with Commissioner Jarova in relation to our take on, on what should best be done. But you're right. I mean, the, the thing has kind of gone a little bit 
cool. And I think that's possibly because, you know, it was December of last year. So it's almost coming up to the anniversary of Cattergate that the whole thing kicked off. And you remember mm. it was, oh, wow, it was, you know, great drama, great excitement about it all. Everybody wondering what's next, what's next, what's next. And of course, there were many leaks from the investigation itself, which I found fascinating um, from the Belgian authorities. So it was almost like this, this soap opera being, you know, played out on, on a daily or weekly basis. And then everything went quiet on that front. And so we're still awaiting the the, the court cases and so on. So I think until that happens, um, you know, there, there will be a certain, you know, it'll, it'll be reasonably quiet. And in the meantime, so the Parliament and, and the Commission moved to put in place, uh, you know, new regulations, new protocols, new rules to avoid this sort of thing happening again, or even things on of, of, of lesser gravity. And so President Metzola, the president of the parliament, has just about finished her 14-point plan. You had all sorts of various actors in that. And at the moment, we're taking a look at that and seeing, okay, well, this is what we were thinking about at the beginning, which would make a, a fairly good piece of ethical architecture for the parliament. And what have they come up with now? So, you know, prima facie, you know, and in fairness to Madame Metzola, she, she has pushed this a lot. But I think there... I think the key thing that I was looking for was, is it, self, is it still going to be self-regulation? Because I think right. this went to, went to the core of the problem. And yes, it is still going to be self-regulation. Of course, the MEPs are going to have to declare more, be a lot more transparent and so on and so forth. But in the end, it will be Parliament and particularly uh, President Metzler who will be making, making decisions. And I think that is problematic. And so you'd have preferred some outside source to regulate the Parliament? Yes, and that, that, was, that was put forward when the, when the um, proposal went through Parliament a few weeks ago. It was proposed that there would be three independent experts and that was voted against. So we're back to self-regulation. Right. Well, but therefore, it's basically you then have to sort of, you know, you've gone as far as you can. You're disappointed with that particular outcome, but uh, you have to be realistic and, and move on to things where you, which are even more pressing than this particular dossier. Is that how well, it works? Well, I, I think one of, I'll say this to my colleagues, one of the great virtues that an ombudsman just has to have. I don't necessarily have it in my private life, but it's it's the it's the gift, the virtue of patience. You know, <laughs> um, I, I remember I, I had a case in, in Ireland years ago, and it was the, the only recommendation because it, it kind of got a bit political, not through my doing, but other reasons that are too complicated to go into. Uh, and it was the only recommendation was ever uh, rejected. Uh, but about God, how many years later? Nine, ten years later. The recommendation I made was eventually agreed to, you know, so that was nine years later. So, I mean, I think like everything, as you know, in Europe, you begin at a certain base level and over time things improve. So, I mean, I will not say that things have not improved. Of course they have. Uh, And of course, every MEP is going to be much more alive and alert to what they're supposed to do. And that will generally improve behaviour anyway. Yeah, especially in the ramp to the next year's uh, European Panther. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, I think they've done enough to kind of be able to say on the doorsteps, we've done this, that and the other. And and most people, the vast majority of people wouldn't be experts, wouldn't be people like me looking at all the little nerdy pieces that they missed out on. So they've done enough to sort of get by for the moment, I think. Okay, moving on then to to access the documents. I'm not not being flippant when I say, but it seems to me that onwards people in the plural uh, um, and transparency groups out there have this re- real thing about access to documents. How how big an issue is it? Uh, because it, it seems to me from the outside uh, perspective that 
it's a relatively new phenomenon where people are more on the outside, more more exercised about having access to documents in public administration. In this case, obviously, and specifically the the European Commission. Uh, back in the days, whenever God knows which uh, decade we're talking about, people didn't seem to be terribly exercised about it. Is that fair? I love the way you say ombuds people have a big thing about <laughs> we have a big thing about accountability, Paul. You yes, know, right. About things working well. Right. And no, I, I absolutely. I mean, whenever I mean, sometimes I think, you know, when I leave this job, I never want to hear the word transparency again. Because when, especially when sometimes when I meet people and they're trying to think, okay, oh, she's the arm, and they immediately say transparency. Right. You know, it's 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 something that is very linked to the office, but it all it's it's simply about you know people being able to exercise their their democratic right to be involved in the union and to have their say. And if they don't know what's going on, they can't have their say. So, but I think as well, but I think you may be pointing to something as well, which is that in the late 1990s and the early part of this century, access to documents, freedom of information, as we would know it more in the yeah. UK, and Ireland, yeah. was the big thing. You know, that was the fashionable thing, and there were lots of. Uh, people advocating for that. And of course, we had our, you, the UK brought in its FOI Act around, um, well, I think 2001, but it didn't kick off in about 2005. And now, let's say 20 years later, roughly, data protection has become right. the thing. Uh, and that's obviously for, for lots of lots of good reasons as well. And of course, because of the whole the invasion of privacy through the whole internet, social media, web stuff, there, there's been a much greater focus on this. And people are also seeing the power of the big uh, digital companies you know, over our lives, <laughs> over our yeah. politics, over our governments and so on. So I get that. So I often find, though, when we're doing particular you know, sensitive cases in relation to access to documents, that data protection is put up there as a shield. You know, uh, right. data protection being used for ridiculous reasons. So that the balance has kind of gone away from that transparency, that FOI piece. You know, the fashion now is is, is data protection. But there still seems to be, uh, based on the statistics that you regularly pu publish your office, a tremendous resistance pushback from the European Commission to your request. You mean they, the 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 outcomes are pretty underwhelming, to say the least, based on your the the figures you put out there. That the Commission doesn't really want to play ball unless it really has to. At best, they 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 are slow, or at worst, they actually ignore your requests. Well, yeah, I mean, I often say that an ombudsman's office works. Any ombudsman's office works on the, if if if, uh, if everybody agrees to play the game. So our part of the game is that we do our work independently, fairly rigorously, all of that. Their part of the game is that unless the recommendations made are manifestly wrong, whatever, mm -hmm. they should accept our recommendations and respect the office as an integral part of the architecture of the administration of the EU. But the problem is that uh, we have found that when there are issues that are you could objectively see as politically sensitive for one reason or another, um, if they don't want to release it, they won't. Uh, or they delay it to a point where it's lost all its you know relevance. Yeah. Uh, and they know that the chances of uh, the, the complainant going all the way to the ECJ is very, very slim. So that's the problem. They're not playing fair. They're not playing on a level playing pitch. They control the tap, whereas it is the citizen who is supposed to have under the treaties at least equal control of the tap. So the commission opens with a big you know, rush of information for certain things and then tiny amounts for others and then zero for others. And that is not the way. And that's the reason that we have made this special report to Parliament, and it is the only the second one I have made in in the last ten years. 
because of frustration at, um, not just remember, it's a frustration is expressed by the people who are trying to make uh, the administration accountable. You know, we're reflecting that through the special report. Is there a danger that the more that organizations like your office make these requests, the more people on the receiving end of these requests find uh, quote unquote clever ways to to obfuscate and to and to shift uh, uh, recording of uh, decisions and, and deliberations uh, into other areas where you cannot make these formal requests. Or am I making an issue out of something which is not an issue? Yeah, I mean that that's an argument that's often made. You know that if if um, you know people are having discussions and and there is an access to documents for those discussions, well, those discussions are then going to take place in margins where no one can see them. But then that's maladministration. You know, they're not right. supposed to be doing that either. Right. So, you know, when, when I, if somebody would say to me, well, you know, you failed to get that across the line, you didn't persuade them to do that. Of course, you know, if, if I feel that the case hasn't been handled well, then yeah, you take a certain amount of responsibility, but nobody's ever made that claim. Uh, well, a few people have made that claim. I can't say absolutely that nobody's ever made that claim. But, but you know, what I say, well, it's actually on them. It is the commission or whatever agency it is, but generally the commission, it's on them to do what is right, what is legal, and what is ethical. And if they don't do that, then that's on their conscience, really. Right. And it's not just formal documents, right? To be clear, you're, the, the, the now well-known request you've made repeatedly to Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, to reveal the content of her, her text messages to the CEO of Pfizer during the exchange that they had during the pandemic, that is still an ongoing discussion, should we say. Well, it is, and it'll be discussed in the ECJ at, at some point because the New York Times, who reported on this uh, initially, or who sought access to documents initially, uh, they they've taken the case to to the ECJ. But you know, something that that fascinates me in relation to all of this: if you take President von der Leyen, she's very visible. I mean, she's you know moving around various places, very, very, very active, uh, very engaged. But I cannot remember a single instance of her actually being interviewed about this particular issue. I mean, can you? No, no. I think she's so, quite elusive, yeah. I mean, how is that possible? You know, that, I mean, I, you know, if it was I, the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister of Ireland, you know, yeah. he would be doorstepped, he would be, you know, whatever, until he came out with something. It just fascinates me on an intellectual level that somebody can be in that powerful position, so visible, and still not let, let interrupt you. I mean, let's come to that when we finish off by this discussion about you know the the, the geopolitical commission and what it means for yeah. for your job. So we'll finish off on that. So I interrupt you. I want to briefly ask your views about about revolving doors. It's now kind of a topical issue again because we're in the last twelve months of the current European com- Commission. Um, some commissioners already moving from from the Berlin to elsewhere. Maybe not necessarily the private sector. So maybe revolving doors issues that hasn't uh, hasn't arisen just yet, but it might. It might arise in the next few months. What is what is your fundamental view on how the European Commission should handle the issue of revolving doors? Well, I, I think that the Commission, uh, I'm never quite sure that the Commission understands just how important this is. I mean, I think we all got a lesson in how important it is when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and there was the whole issue about the dependency of Europe's and Germans uh, particular dependence on, you know, Russian gas and, and, and all of that. And then we found out the extent to which that dependency had been enabled by revolving doors cases, you know, you know, various prime ministers and politicians and whatever, not just in, in relation to gas companies, but all of those who had, who had propped up 
Putin's uh, Putin's system. So I think we should have all got a, a lesson from that. Uh, I mean, I think the commission, in fairness to it, it, it does try to, I mean, it has toughened its rules and its surveillance and, and so on and so forth. But I still think it um, tends to have a sort of perhaps too understanding an approach to this issue. They say, well, somebody's been offered a job. We don't really want to stop them. And I think there's also the point, well, it could be me in a few years' time. You know, there's a yeah. there's a reluctance to clamp down on something where in a world where increasingly people who would have normally left their political careers or their careers in public administration, that would have been the end point unless they want to go on and do charitable or academic work, or whatever. They're now seeing this third age career, if you like, uh, which can be very lucrative in in consultancies and so on, and they don't really want to be stopped from doing that when there's a huge amount of money out there. Right. Let's finish off then, as I said at the beginning, with this uh, uh, these points you made in a, in a fascinating speech in in Warsaw just last month about your concerns you have for the increasingly geopolitical commission as personified by Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, and uh, the impact on scrutiny, accountability, transparency, and the rest of it. You say that your your job is not political. Uh, you're not supposed to stray into the arena of politics. I'm quoting your words here. But when a body such as the Commission, uh, quoting from your speech, moves more towards its political role, how does an ombudsman navigate that intersection? So exactly how does the ombudsman in this case navigate that intersection? With great care. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, yeah, I, I was doing this talk in, in, in Warsaw and, um, you know, what fascinated me was that, you know, when uh, former Commission President Barroso, because, uh, you know, I t- 10 years ago I, I, I was elected, so he, Barroso was there, he, he was just, he just had a plain old-fashioned commission, right? Yeah. Then you had Jean-Claude Juncker come in and spits and gathered out and process. So he thought, well, right, okay, I'm in a different space now. So his was a political commission, okay? Right. And then uh, Ursula von der Leyen comes in, I think possibly prompted by Mr. Macron, President Macron and so on, and she declares, we're a geopolitical commission. And I'm thinking, says who? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Uh, because nothing changed except the, like now I understand the geopolitical commission because you know the, the, all the power block stuff that's going on at the moment and can we trust the US particularly if if uh, if if Trump comes back and what's happening with Russia and China's dominance and so on I think and, I understand that sorry and, go if, ahead. I, and if I can interrupt you but it's, it is interesting because this this uh, this this claim to be geopolitical commission was made of course before the pandemic before Ukraine before yes. Middle East as well, well so actually, it was, yes, it was, yes. You would call it prescient. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and but I think it, it it was it was this idea of we need to be able to stand on our own two feet a little right. bit more. You know, we need to be resilient. What's the strategic autonomy and and and, and all of that? And of course, you're absolutely right. Then the pandemic hit, and and then uh, and then. But I, I think possibly the what, what prompted uh, the the geopolitical commission thing before all of those was was you know the. China, uh, you know, and 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 all of that, and and where where the the EU was in, in relation to trade. So we now have a geopolitical commission, and and so we're thinking, well, well, do you say where, where does that leave us? But if you take something like the, the the migration piece, okay, so the geopolitics, you could argue, are these deals that are being made with African countries. More recently, well, Tunisia, right, we'll give you lots of money to help you keep people from 
making very risky journeys across the Mediterranean and all of that. And so, I mean, that's political because when the deal was signed with the president of Tunisia back, back in June, I think, that there was Madam, uh, President von der Leyen, there was Prime Minister of Italy, Madame Maloney, uh, and there was former, well, he's still the Prime Minister of, um, of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte. Yeah. Ruta and Maloney, their politics were heavily invested in, in migration because Ruta fell partly out of the migration issue. And and Maloney, the, one of her big things that got her elected was, was, was the whole migration piece. So this was deeply political. So the way we got into that was not by looking at the politics of it, but rather by looking on the fundamental rights element of it. Like, for example, did you do a fundamental rights impact assessment, we asked or have asked the commission before you entered this yeah. Uh, agreement. Uh, so we're waiting uh, for their answers. We understand that that they didn't. Um, but we have also asked, well, you know, if you didn't, well, what happens if uh, fundamental rights abuses are uncovered and so on? What are you going to do then? So that's how we navigate that. But where we are stopped in relation to this geopolitical piece is that if you take the whole issue of defence, which has become a huge thing over the last few years and defence procurement and, and all of that, and, and international affairs more generally, but in Regulation 1049, which everybody's very reluctant to change, even though it's now 21 years old, there are absolute exemptions for issues around defence, international relations. So you can't even invoke a public interest um, uh, right. exemption. Say, okay, this does that has to do with international relations, but th- there's a public interest in doing this. This has to do with defence, but there's a public interest in that doesn't exist, and that's problematic given how much more central to the operation of the European Union those areas have now become over the last few years. And that's where the geopolitics is difficult to manoeuvre for an ombudsman. Right. Well, to finish off on this point then, Beverly, to what extent do you have any sympathy to the situation of the President of the European Commission and her colleagues, some of her colleagues anyway, uh, to the point that she's acting a lot in crisis mode at the moment? She simply hasn't got time or the the bandwidth or the capacity, whatever, to to consult more widely and to do all these various things, such as impact assessments that you're ask, you're asking for, or is it beyond that that the sympathy has certain limits because there's a danger that the the, the crisis mode becomes the new normal? Well, yeah, of course there 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 is that, and and when one is in crisis mode, lots of things are overlooked, and the public's understanding is sought for overlooking things. But then, when you go out of crisis mode, does this mode of operation uh, remain? Uh, yeah, and I absolutely take your point. You know, uh, but you know, I find that when the EU wants to do something, they will find the money, and they will also find the bandwidth. <laughs> um, so. You know, they they found it in COVID. They found it uh, at other points when when the the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What they were enabled to do. So where there is a will, there is a way. Right. Well, on that philosophical note, we have to leave it there. Emily O'Reilly, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.